This is Luke chapter one, starting in verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Am I, am I on? Okay. I'm preaching from technology today, so that'll be a little bit different. You know, in my second time to preach, it's a little different than my first time to preach. So, um, hey, good morning. Um, I am uh, very loud. Am I really loud to you guys? Sorry. I don't know if we can turn that down just a tad bit. Um, it's great to be with you. My name is Matt Van Zant, and I serve as one of the elders here at Sojourn Heights. It's a true honor to get to bring God's word before you. Um, I am always amazed at what, how I imagine prepping for a sermon goes, and then the reality with which it goes. It makes me deeply respect not only our pastors, but all pastors who preach uh, much more than I do, so much more. So I hope that today is helpful. I hope that I'm clear. And I do hope that I leave you with something to really think about from the scriptures. One, one little announcement real quick. Um, as you guys know that we have been in the middle of a pastoral search process um, and this weekend, we actually have had one of our external candidates in town with us, spending time with us and with our elders and our pastoral search committee. So Corey Majors, he's sitting over here. Corey, raise your hand. There he is. Uh, Corey and his wife, Sherry, are in from Batesville, Arkansas. And some of you guys have probably already met him. But please introduce yourself after uh, the service if you would like. It's been a fantastic weekend getting to know them and know, his, know Sherry and for them getting to know us. And just ask that you would continue to pray. Pray for our church. Pray for the majors. Um, pray for us as uh, we seek the Lord's leading. Uh, as we move into the text, I just want to pray one more time for myself. Just that ask God to help me. So if you would, just real quickly bow your head with me. Lord, we uh, are thankful, and you tell us that man does not live by bread alone, um, but that every word that comes from the mouth of God, and so I feel the weight of the responsibility to feed the sheep this morning, and so I just ask for your help, and I pray that you would make uh, what I say clear, and that people would be encouraged, and we pray all this in your name, amen. As we've talked about, um, we are in a season of Advent. Today marks the fourth Sunday in the season of Advent, which is a season of longing and preparation for the birth of Jesus. 
It's during Advent that we relive ancient Israel's anticipation of the coming Messiah. But we also simultaneously long for him to come again with the new heavens and the new earth. But I want to begin my time in the text by telling you about a man, a man named Isaac Watts. Anybody in here familiar with Isaac Watts? I would be, wow, wow, very impressed. I was not. Uh, Isaac Watts, born in 1674, he was a child prodigy. At the age of four, he learned Latin, at nine, Greek, at 11, French, and at 13 uh, years old, he learned Hebrew. Now, as a kid, he regularly critiqued the, the hymns that he heard on, uh, in his church that he grew up in, and finally, his dad, fed up with his critique, looked at him and said, well, son, why don't you write something better then? Well, let me go on a little bit of a tangent here, because an interesting fact about Isaac is that he did actually start to publish his hymns and his poems and his songs and all of his works, and it actually led him to have what would be his one shot at love. A lady named Elizabeth Singer actually fell in love with Watts without ever meeting him, but through his published poems. She was so taken by his ability to write so beautifully and deeply and passionately that she wrote him a letter actually asking him to marry her. Now, as wisdom could probably have told us, things went differently when they met in person. Isaac, enthralled with his beautiful admirer, he got down on a knee to propose to her, of which Miss Singer retracted her offer of engagement to Isaac. She later wrote saying that Isaac was, and I quote, only five feet tall, with a shallow face, a hooked nose, prominent cheekbones, small eyes, and this one's really good, death-like color, okay? But this is my favorite part of the whole thing, and I just really hope it's true. I'm obviously just scouring these facts, and I really hope it's true, but apparently when Isaac proposed, Elizabeth responded with this. I am sorry. I admire the jewel that you are, but not the casket that contains it. (laughs) Ladies, take note. This is not how you let a man down. Probably scarred him for life. No Dodds Pinger to counsel him out of that newfound hurt. And probably to our, not to be surprised, Isaac never married. I know, right? All right. However, To this man's credit, he devoted his single life to the glory of God. In 1707, he published a series of songs and spiritual hymns, one of which was, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And in 1719, Watts published his poetic work based on Psalm 98 that would go on to become what many consider to be the greatest Christmas hymn of all time, Joy to the World. The point of this story is that while songs may not give us a window into what someone looks like physically, they do give us a window into the soul of a person. In these first two chapters of the book of Luke, there are four songs to take note of. Britt talked about Mary's song, the Magnificat. There are actually two songs in chapter two, which I don't believe that we will actually get into. And then there's Zechariah's song, which is what I have been tasked with talking about here today. 
And so as we read through that song, as Paul read through that song, there is a very clear theme that arises in Zechariah's song, and that is salvation. In verse 69, he blesses the Lord who has raised up a horn of salvation, and then he talks about being delivered, saved from the hands of our enemies. And then he goes on to say that his own son, Zechariah's son, John, will come to prepare the way of the Lord, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. That's what this song is about. Zechariah is singing a song of praise to God about our great salvation, the great salvation that has dawned in the coming of the Messiah. So as we look through this hymn, I'm doing something a little bit different. I didn't think I would do this, but here I am, all right? I want to point out five things about salvation that we see in this passage, that it teaches us about salvation. So if you have the question of what is salvation, my hope is is that you will be able to leave with a few answers to that question. So as always, if you have a Bible, I would love for you to be turned here because I'm going to be kind of pointing back to verses. Uh, I would love for you to be in Luke 1, verses 67 through 80. But I'm going to begin here with my first point, and that's this. Salvation always involves a divine visitation. Salvation involves God coming to man, God coming to human beings. You see, in verse 68, it says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. God has visited his people. Of course, Zechariah says this in the past tense, even though the Lord Jesus has yet to be born. But I think he's reflecting on what he himself has already experienced. And if you remember his story, this is what happened. Zechariah was a priest. He was of the family of Levi. And there were thousands of priests in Israel. And they rotated who would get temple duty. Who would serve, it was like a, uh, who would serve on, it was serving on rotation. It was an honor when your name was called to serve in the temple. And so Zechariah's name is called, and in fact, he's not only called to serve in the temple, but he's ser- called to uh, offer incense, which is like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And it's when he's in the temple, when he's serving in the temple, that something happens. Now, you have to remember that Zechariah is an old man. His wife is named Elizabeth, and the great burden of their lives is that Elizabeth is barren. She has no children. And in the ancient world, this was a tremendous reproach for a woman to not have children because so much value was placed on motherhood. A woman's worth was found in having children, but Elizabeth had no child. She was barren. She takes place alongside some of the other great women in the Bible who suffered barrenness until God did a miracle. Think of Abraham and Sarah, You think of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and oftentimes in Scripture, when God is about to do a great thing, he's about to carry forward the story of redemption. He does it by bringing about a miraculous birth, and that's the case here as well. So Zechariah is in the temple, and he's doing his ministry in the temple, and something happens. An angel appears to him and speaks to him, and he says, I want you to see this in verses uh, Luke 1, verse 11 through 15. 
says, there an angel appeared to him, an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel of the Lord said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Now this is amazing. This is an amazing thing. It's amazing for a lot of reasons. But the, primarily, this is amazing because God had been silent for 400 years. Four centuries. Think about that. That's longer than our country has existed. For 400 years, God had not spoken since the prophet Malachi. And here are the people of God. They are waiting for a word. They are waiting for their Messiah. They are waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. But they've been waiting for 400 years. And even though they are in their own land, the land that God had promised to them, they live under the reign and rule of a pagan ruler in the Romans. And they really felt like they were still living in exile from God. They had not yet seen the fulfillment of God's promises. One song that we sing this time of year really captures the hearts of Israel at this time. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Anybody? Until the Son of God appear. Right? That's where they were. God has been silent for 400 years. No sign of the Messiah, no child for Zechariah and Elizabeth living under a pagan ruler. It is a battle for hope. It is into this situation that God sends a message. This is how God often works in the midst of the worst possible human situations. He visits his people. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. He says, man's extremity is God's opportunity. And what Zechariah needed, and what the whole nation of Israel needed, and what you and I need in our own lives, is a supernatural divine visitation. We need God to come near. And that happened supremely, historically, in the advent of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, which is all about, of course, Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us. So just as Zechariah and Elizabeth were literally barren, you and I are spiritually barren until God comes. And so salvation is all about Christ through the Spirit, fixing his humble home in our hearts. So salvation is always about a divine visitation. That's number one. Now number two. Salvation is accomplished through the display of God's mighty power. It is through the divine visitation in which God displays his mighty power. Again, look at the text in verse 68 through 69. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. If anybody ever read this and wondered what in the world is the horn of salvation, right? What in the world is, why do they say horn? You're thinking like a French horn, trumpet, right? It's a different kind of horn, right? 
It's not all about, it's not talking about musical instruments. This is ancient world was an, was an agri, was, let me say this, agricultural cultures. That's hard to say for me. Um, they were agrarian societies. They were very familiar with animals, much more than we are. And a horn of salvation was reference to the horn of an animal. If you want an example, think about a ram, a ram who is ready to charge. He shakes his head in anger, and those horns are ready with all of that brute force to come and plow right into its enemy. So the horn was the strength, was a symbol of strength and power. This is the language that you see in the Old Testament. In Psalm 18:2, David is praying, and he just piles up metaphor after metaphor that all speak about the strength and the power of God. He says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. This is talking about the power of God that is being raised up in the Messiah. Now again, Zechariah had personally seen and experienced the power of God, the voice of God. He had heard God's message, his revelation through an angel. And then you remember, he responded in unbelief. He was then struck mute. He was unable to speak for nine months after John is born in what seems to be somewhat like an ironic judgment that God has on Zechariah. It is almost as though uh, God is taking away Zechariah's voice to tell him that God has spoken. Uh, his voice, he was struck me and he was unable to speak for nine months until after John is born. It's, it's only when he names the child in obedience to God's command, what the angel had told him in its message. It's only then that his tongue is loosed and he is able to speak, which sounds just eerily similar to Abraham. When Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It seems as though here when Zechariah, it seems like in the nine months of silence that God did a good work in Zechariah's heart, that he had moved from unbelief to belief. And what happened was is it enacted, enacted a mercy of God in loosening his tongue. And the first thing out of his mouth is this hymn. It's this song, Blessed be the Lord God who's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. It seems here that Zechariah also understands that the display of power of God is not just what he's experienced himself, but it's about what's coming because he's already, uh, he already knows that Elizabeth's cousin Mary is also carrying a child and that this also has been a supernatural conception. And as a virgin, she has conceived by the Holy Spirit. She has conceived the Christ child. She is bearing the Messiah. And we know that he's talking about the Messiah because he says he has raised a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Well, Zechariah isn't from the house of David. And Elizabeth is not from the house of David. But Jesus will be from the house of David. So this is a description of Jesus, a horn, the horn of salvation through whom God is going to display his power. But there's one detail that is unique about this. He comes as a child. A picture of the most vulnerable and weak of human beings is the means by which God is going to display his supernatural power. But this is God's way, isn't it? 
God displays his power through the means of human weakness. That's the story of the incarnation. And supremely, it's the story of the crucifixion, which we aren't studying in this season, but obviously we're studying in the life of our church where God's greatest demonstration of power in the history of the world and all the history of redemption is in the cross where Jesus, the God-man, gave up his power and he died in weakness for our sins. So salvation, it always involves a divine visitation and it's accomplished through this display of God's mighty power, but it's power clothed in weakness. Number three, God performs his saving work in fulfillment of his covenant promises. I don't know if you noticed as we read the passage earlier, uh, but there are a lot of allusions to the Old Testament. You see, in verses 69 through 73, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Now listen to this. This is awesome. Does anybody know what Zechariah's name means? God remembers. Does anybody know what Elizabeth names, Elizabeth's name means? Oath. Here you have it. God, you have God remembering his covenant. You have God fulfilling his promises. You have God remembering the oath. There are references here really to two different covenants. The covenant of David, first of all, you see in, in, in verse 69, a horn of salvation in the house of his servant, David. And then you have the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant to Abraham that you have in verse 73. And it says, the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham. You see, our hope of redemption, the hope of the redemption of the world is built on these two promises. These two covenants in the Old Testament. You remember that God had come to Abraham and had said, I'm going to give you a son. Now again, his wife Sarah was also barren. But he said, I'm going to give you a son and in you and in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And God had made a similar promise to David. He had told David when David wanted to build a temple for the Lord, the Lord had essentially said, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty and your house is going to endure forever. A son from your loins is going to sit on the throne of my people forever. You see, God is being faithful to his promises right here in this moment in scripture in the coming of the Lord Jesus. He is fulfilling these covenants. The Old Testament is pointing to Jesus Salvation is a visitation from God where he will display his great power clothed in weakness. And the means by which he, this is going to happen is through promises that he is going to keep over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Salvation is accomplished by God fulfilling his covenant promises made to the fathers through the holy prophets in the Old Testament scriptures. Number four. Salvation includes forgiveness of sins and renewal in holiness. 
There are other things that we could say that it includes as well, but you have, uh, but you have these two things here in this passage. If you look at the verses uh, 74 to 78, it says this, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, now he's speaking directly to his son, John the Baptist, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Now there's a lot right there, but just notice these two things. Two things that he emphasizes here are, A, we are saved in order to serve God in holiness and in righteousness, and that John the Baptist's role is preparing the way for the Lord to give knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. We see holiness and we see forgiveness. These are two integral parts of salvation. So you remember that John's role, the new baby that has been born, John's role is going to be that he is the forerunner of the Messiah, the, one, the baby that now exists in Mary's womb. He was the one that was coming like Elijah, fulfilling the prophecies that we saw 400 years ago in Malachi 4, which are also referenced here in Luke 1. He comes doing what? What is he going to come? The one that they said, uh, they prophesied that was going to come, what is he going to do? Well, he is going to be preaching a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what he's doing. He's calling people to repent. He's calling them to baptism. He's pointing them to the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Repentance and forgiveness. Salvation always includes both of these things. It includes repentance from our sins and being renewed in righteousness and holiness, the transformation of our lives, the regenerating, renewing work of the Holy Spirit that begins to make us holy. It includes that. It includes the removal of the penalty of sin, the guilt of sin, the forgiveness and the pardon of our sins. You see, this is really the heart of the new covenant that we see that the prophet Jeremiah spoke about. In, in Jeremiah 31, 33 and 34, he says this. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Renewal and holiness, forgiveness of sins, faith and repentance. This is all at the heart of the gospel. It is what is included in salvation. A hymn that we sing in our church a lot uh, called Rock of Ages. Do you remember these lines? Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flow be of sin the double cure. Anybody know the last line? save from wrath and make me pure, right? So what does salvation involve? 
It involves a divine visitation and a display of great power shown in weakness through promises which with, God, with which God has kept over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And it involves having your sins forgiven and having your heart renewed and changed and transformed. Salvation involves both forgiveness of sins and a renewal in holiness. Number five, our last one, and we'll land the plane here. Number five, uh, salvation, is God, uh, salvation is God's light breaking into the darkness of the world. Look at verses 78 and 79. Because the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. You see, the sunrise, some of the old translations actually say the day spring. The idea is that the day is springing up as the sun rises, the dawn of morning. Zechariah here is thinking about the Messiah being born. He's saying the dawn is here, the sun is rising, God is visiting us. He is bringing his light to, uh, to our darkness. Again, this language shining out of the Old Testament is Old Testament. This is Old Testament language. Look at Malachi 4. This is how the Old Testament ends. Malachi 4.2 says this, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Who is the sun of righteousness? It's the Messiah. It's the Christ. It's the baby in Mary's belly. He is the morning star. He is the dayspring. He is the sunrise. He is the light of the world. And we've already talked about this hymn, but in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, there's another part, another line in there, section in there. I don't know if that's the right word. I'm not in music. Um, but it says this. O come, thou bright and morning star, and bring us comfort from afar. From afar. Dispel the shadows of night, Anybody know the last part? That's a harder one. I didn't know. And turn our darkness into light. Right? Emmanuel, God with us. That is what he does. He comes, he brings light into the darkness. He has visited us, visited us with his grace. And that's what salvation is. Jonathan Edwards, Edwards calls it a divine and supernatural light that is imparted into the soul. So what is salvation? Salvation is a divine visitation whereby God, through his promises, shows his great power clothed in weakness, accomplishing the forgiveness of sin and bringing about a renewal of holiness in our lives. And all of this, is God bringing light and breaking it into the darkness of our lives? And so the question for each of us here this morning, the questions are these. Has God brought light into the darkness of your heart? Has the Spirit of God opened your eyes to see the truth of who Jesus is? 
Christian, are you walking in that light here today? If not, why? What is distracting you? What sins are hanging up, are hanging you up? What lies are you believing? What things are we elevating higher than the God who loves us so much, who has sent his only son to come into the world to die for people like us who didn't deserve it? Do you know the forgiveness of sin that God has given to you as a gift? Do you see in your heart a renewal to walk faithfully and obediently to your God? Do you know that God is faithful even in the hardest areas of your life? Does your barren spirit know the presence of a near Savior? You see, salvation is what we need. Salvation just isn't what we need one time in our life and then we're good and we just, we pray to prayer and we go. But salvation is what we need each and every day. And God is faithful to keep us. But salvation is not only what we need, but salvation is what our world needs. And so in this season, we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus. And in the months to come, we will remember his crucifixion and we will rejoice in his resurrection. And now ascended on high through the power of his Holy Spirit, he brings the light into our darkness. This is why if you've ever been to a candlelight service at Christmas, right? They turn off all the lights and it starts with how many lights? It starts with how many? Just one, right? And what do they do? They pass it along. And soon enough, the whole room who could not see, it is light breaking into darkness where now you couldn't see, all of a sudden you couldn't see, and now all of a sudden you can see. And it is the light that allows us to see, and that is why we celebrate the Christmas season. So by all means, enjoy the carols, enjoy the lights, enjoy the gifts, enjoy family this season. But remember, that these things are meant to point us to the real gift. This is why we celebrate that the Lord Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, God with us, has come. God has visited us. So let's entrust ourselves to him today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so good to us. You are a God who has come and visited enemies of you. And you have come full of mercy and grace. You have come full of love. And in this season, we get to celebrate your provision in our Savior. And I pray, I don't know what, what people come in here today with, but Lord, I know that you do. And um, I pray that in this Christmas season that we would remember why it is that we celebrate. If we've been running from God for a long time, I pray, Lord, that you would convict the hearts of those in here who are running and that you would turn them back to your son. Lord, we need your help. And may this season, may this Christmas season be a sweet one for this church as we remember your great love with which you have shown us by sending 
your son. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.